Hello, and welcome to the Methods of Rationality podcast, second half of Red Legacy. But before we begin that, an interjection. First off, have you guys been keeping up with the new chapters as Eliezer's been putting them out? Awesome stuff. I can't believe this is finally coming to a close. It's not even over, and I miss it already. Anyway, my big announcement this week is that tons of previous episodes have been updated now with new voice actors for minor parts. The response was amazing. Literally every single role I made available was filled by someone. The list of updated episodes is available in today's production notes. There's dozens of them. If you'd like to hear the new episodes, you do have to re-download them. If you use iTunes, that also means that you first have to delete the files that you already have on your device. iTunes won't let you re-download an episode you already have. However, anyone who plans to do this, please, please do not download all the episodes at once. At least not in the first few weeks. I don't want my host servers to be overwhelmed. Just download a single episode at a time as you listen to them. Or, if you want to replace them all without re-listening, please limit yourself to re-downloading only a few per day. If everyone tried to re-download all hundred chapters at once, I imagine bad things would probably happen. That being said, there were hundreds of lines by dozens of people I had to update, and it's possible I missed one or two. If anyone stumbles across a missed line, particularly if you know you sent me that line but you don't hear your voice where you were expecting it, please email me at hpmorpodcast at gmail.com, and I'll get it fixed as soon as possible. In a couple cases, due to timing, I received more than one submission for the same character, in which case I had to choose one. I apologize if you were cut for whatever reason. Please know it was a hard decision. Finally, I've updated the credits page and moved it to a more noticeable position. Unless directed otherwise, I've put people down by their first name followed by last initial. If you'd like that change to anything else, let me know. Also, if you contributed a voice and you have a personal webpage or blog you'd like me to link your name to, let me know and I'll get that updated. And of course, there is the real possibility that I forgot to put someone's name on the credits list, in which case, again, let me know and I'll get that fixed. Finally, there does appear to be a few new roles in the upcoming chapters, such as Hufflepuff Boy in Chapter 104. If you still want to contribute your voice and you haven't had a chance yet, I will be keeping the available roles file updated for episodes that have not yet aired. Okay, with all that out of the way, on to our story. Red Legacy first appeared in the February 2015 issue of Asimov Science Fiction Magazine. Written by Ineash Brodsky, read by Ineash Brodsky and Autumn Rachel Dryden. On Tract I watch my daughter as she floats in a tank of liquid sunshine. She does not breathe yet. That will come tomorrow. Now she is still, her eyes closed her hair drifting about her head in a golden halo. Her skin has just begun growing. It's so thin it's still transparent. I can see the diminutive pink musculature below and the veins of webwork of lapis lazuli. It is quiet, not silent. It is never silent in the complex. There is a warm hum of machinery. Distantly, fans push fresh air through the vast ducts. 
Occasionally, water gurgles through pipes. It is the quiet of a living thing slumbering. I've turned off all the lights I can. From the doorway comes a dim spill of light from a remote hallway bulb. The interior of the lab is brushed with the glow of a muted yellow sun. The incubation tank's lights are never shut off. They glitter and refract through the liquid, illuminating Alexia and washing the lab in shimmering amber waves. Sixteen days and ten hours of life. At least it's better than what we had at first, back when there was a we. I had delayed too long in taking a tissue sample from Alexia. I didn't want to clone a brain-dead child or an infant in the body of an eight-year-old. That would not be Alexia. It would be someone new who was growing up with her DNA. So I waited until we were sure that the cartographic microbes could fully map out a human-sized brain and reproduce its connectome scaffolding. By then, Alexia was so weak she couldn't feed herself. Natasha was with me at the start. Together, we could move mountains. Together, we would change the world. But neither of us had been ready for how quickly the cancer came back. I had thought it was horrifying the first time, watching our child crumble from a vibrant ball of curiosity to a wasted skeleton in three months' time. After the first resurrection, Alexia had only two days of good health. Then her body folded, succumbing fully to the leukemia after eight days of struggle. I knew how hard it would be, but even I couldn't think for days afterward. Couldn't feel. I barely ate. Natasha took it even worse. I place one hand on the glass of the incubation tank. It is warm, 30 degrees. Alexia's nutrient bath is held at body temperature, and though I know she cannot perceive anything yet, I am comforted that it is a pleasant embrace. Natasha left before the leukemia was cured, even though Alexia was getting better. Every iteration she lasted longer, her body fought harder. It was working, and Natasha left anyway. The weight of the work is just enough to crush me slowly on my own. Every month I slip a little further down the slope, straining against the boulder that we'd pushed so far. I see the centimeters I lose, and if I could only push a bit harder, I could regain them. Now the leukemia is gone entirely, defeated by Alexia's refined body. I have hopes that she'll never have any form of cancer in her life. But Alexia's system still crashes after approximately 394 hours. There is a flaw in the neurological template. Something went wrong. Something that cascades into complete biological failure. Something that eludes me and damns me. I don't remember how many iterations it's been since the 16-day and 10-hour plateau. I could check in my notebook, but I don't bother. I should be systematically hunting down the error, controlling for variables, forming hypotheses, and eliminating them methodically. I should have several tanks running at once, and reams upon reams of notes filled with comparative graphs, data analysis, postmortems. But I have an entire facility to administer, a research directive from the Kremlin, and a sick child to care for as a single mother. I don't want to feel grateful for the weeks she is dead, weeks that I can sleep more than four hours a night, weeks I don't have to feel guilty for going to the lab. They are cold and empty, and precious, and sweet, 
plums picked too soon, chilled and sugared. I have stopped taking any but the barest of notes. I have stopped trying to divine patterns from results. I simply make alterations and run another iteration and hope. I've thickened the neural scaffolding. I've thinned the neural scaffolding. I've altered the incubator's nutrients more times than I can count. I've spliced foreign genes into Alexia's DNA. My genes, others' genes, virus genes. She is slightly different each time. I don't know what I'm growing, but I cannot stop until I have my daughter back. I am desperate and flailing, and I will never, ever give up on Alexia. The sun will burn down to a cinder before I let my daughter stay dead. In the hall, two pairs of footsteps approach, clapping in unison on the bare floor, past the door to the lab, and continue on, receding in echoes. The night watch on patrol. I let my hand drop from the glass, leaving a smudge of oil. The facility breathes, and I breathe with it. I realize this isn't science anymore. This is madness. Three. The Americans. Maria's eyes flared open and she jerked upright. The glowing hands of her bedside alarm clock showed approximately three o'clock. What had woken her? From somewhere distant, she could hear muffled popping noises, sharp staccato beats. They swelled, stopped, resumed, erratic. Then the bed shook, the floor shook, the whole room shook with a bone-deep bass vibration, an explosion somewhere. She'd been woken by the previous one. Maria flung her sheet aside, jumped to her feet. She swung her heavy lab coat over her shoulders, the one weighed down with a thick inner layer of quilted nylon and interwoven aluminum plates. She pocketed the walther to the sounds of soldiers running the hall beyond the door. They yelled out as they approached. Who? An answering yell from further down the hall, muffled by distance so she could just barely make out. Americans! South Lab! There was a mass of swearing as the soldiers ran past and down the hall. Maria swore silently with them. She yanked open her door and turned toward the command center, the immediate first stop, considering her options as she strode. The Americans had an ideological commitment to the alternative evolutionary theory proposed by Charles Darwin. The inherent cruelty of that theory offered the only moral justification for capitalism. Even the British had politely allowed Darwin's name to fall into disuse and picked up the biological tools provided by Lamarck's masterpiece. The Americans refused. Without the excuses of Darwinism, their evil would have no shield. Darwinism disallowed genetic reverse transcription. Darwin claimed that changes in an organism's body were purely physiological and could not be reflected in the organism's genes. A woman born with genes for mental feebleness could never overcome that heritage with study and work. She was stuck with those genes for life. More importantly, she could never ensure stronger genes for her offspring. She was cursed to only ever contribute genes for feeble-mindedness to any children she had. That belief was what lay at the root of capitalism's rapacity. In the real world, the righteous are rewarded. Those who worked hard would reap exceptional children. 
Through sweat and effort, man could raise himself up to ever greater heights. In the Darwinist's vision, this was not the case. Children would inherit genes that were a permutation of what their parents had been born with, regardless of how much or how little their parents did in the interim. That wasn't even the worst of it. It was entirely random if the genetic inheritance would be better or worse than that of the parents, and it was impossible to determine which offspring had inherited superior genes and which had inherited inferior genes in a laboratory. No codex yet existed that would identify some DNA sequences as desirable and others as defective. This led to the true horror of Darwinian capitalism. The only strategy that could move a population forward was excess reproduction, followed by a culling of the inferior offspring. The new generation must, by necessity, fight over the inadequate resources left. They were pitted amongst each other to winnow out the most fit. The strongest of them, the smartest or brawniest or fastest, would survive, seizing enough resources to live and to support their own children. Those unlucky enough to have been born with weaker genes would die before they could reproduce. Starvation. Disease. Violence. Wretched deaths. There was no refining of genes through effort. There was only the purging of the weak. A remorseless process, red in tooth and claw. Only through a harvest of slaughter could society be advanced. They euphemized this selection. The Lamarckian effects of implementing the Darwinian model were, of course, observable in the Americans' genetic makeup. The increased aggression of the parents was transmitted to their children. The ruthlessness of the Americans was legendary. They could not be moved to pity or remorse. American agents may not have the inbred skill and finesse of the British, but their feral drive more than compensated for it. The halls of Maria's facility would be awash with blood before this day was over. As she stepped into the control center, it was obvious she had not come to this conclusion alone. Grim-faced men and women acknowledged her with barely a nod, dread in their eyes. Ivan's lieutenant Sergei stood leaning over the closed-circuit monitors, punching buttons to switch between various cameras with one hand, holding a radio receiver in the other. His face glistened with a damp sheen. The facility map on the wall beside him was a field of flashing bulbs. Every floor had at least two rooms that had been hit, including... Maria's heart stopped. No. The edges of her vision darkened, her focus tightened, until all she could see was a single outlined room on the wall. The tunneling of her vision brought the map inches from her face. The light by cloning lab 2 was blinking rapidly. Alexia's lab. Maria spun on her heel and raced down the hall. Behind her, someone called her name, the sound losing itself in the complex, ricocheting off the walls. All she heard were her footfalls, shoes slapping the ground, her heartbeat pounding in her ears. The room was a disaster. Smashed glass, scorched walls, overturned desks. In the center of the room, the large cloning tank sat wrecked, one side caved in by a blast. Thick, vitreous fluids oozed down its side and pooled around its base. 
Maria rushed past it, not allowing herself to look at the half-grown thing still clutched within. It was little more than a partially fleshed skeleton at this stage. It couldn't survive outside the tank, couldn't even draw breath. She could start again in Lab 3 tomorrow if the backup cortical matrix was intact. She dashed to a corner of the darkened room, the overhead lamps shattered, twisted metal blocked her path, a crumpled gurney, a fallen rack of shelving. She scrabbled at them with bare hands, wrenching them aside. The wreckage banged down behind her, and she was down on her knees amid the shattered glass, frantic, pulling at a small steel door, a door like that on a safe, a door which should not have goo seeping out from under it, and yet it did. It did. Her hands shook as she swung the safe open. Inside, a jungle of jagged glass and jaundiced slime streaked with tiny rivulets of red. A mess of spongy pink matter in tatters. Shredded. Smashed. Smeared. It seeped. Maria slowly stood up in a daze. The room spun. She steadied herself with a hand on a counter. Observed herself vomiting, clenching abdominal strain, loose liquid spilling from her lips. She wiped her mouth with the back of one hand and staggered back to the broken body in the wrecked cloning tank. Maybe she could still... No. The body had been pulped by the explosion. Her hands pawed at the corpse, the world blurred, and somewhere she could hear a high keening, a disbelieving shrieking that came in inhuman waves. It didn't sound like the sort of noise a human should be able to produce. Unable to breathe, she staggered from the room. The floor floated beneath her, the walls lurched from side to side. It seemed like she should be doing something. There was something that was expected now that honor demanded she must do. Alexia was gone, and she had been so close. But now there was nothing to be done. Except there was. Why wouldn't it come to her? Maria's eyes focused, and she realized she was back in the control center. A tech was looking at her apprehensively. The lieutenant was still leaning over the monitors, speaking into his radio. She couldn't hear what he was saying. All that emitted from his mouth was a sort of low buzzing sound in the rhythms of human speech. Another deep rumble shook the floor. The map bulb by the diesel backup generators flared to life. It occurred to her that there was something she could do. Maria took in a deep breath and walked to the reactor controls. Calmly, she switched every control rod to manual, then took hold of the large central dial and began turning it counterclockwise. Unheard over the sounds of combat, the control rods retracted. The temperature gauge began to rise, then stopped, as the system compensated by boosting the coolant flow. Maria moved to the wall of breakers and flipped every switch on the fourth floor. The pumps died, and the temperature resumed its rise. Now, the backup generators would have activated, completely beyond her control, unless she could physically destroy them. Fortunately, the Americans had done that for her, and sealed their own doom. The nervous technician came over, eyes darting from her to the reactor temperature gauge, to the breakers, then back to her. She noticed he was the same man who'd scooped up Alexia during Yuri Pushkin's audit to cover for her. 
back when there had been an Alexia to scoop up. Dr. Govanich, what are you doing? What does it look like? I'm taking the reactor critical. The tech went completely white. She watched the blood draining from his face over mere seconds. But we'll all die! Better for us to die than for the Americans to escape with this research. What we have here can alter the course of the next world war. It can't fall into their hands. And they killed Alexia. They would never see daylight again. We have not lost the facility. They will be repelled. We don't need to die. If they take the control center, the meltdown can be halted. We have to act before they have it. Are you willing to risk the future of all Russia? Of all free socialist people? But it's too soon! His eyes had taken on a wild gleam now, his voice a desperate strain. Stop this now! You're killing us for nothing! No! The tech stared at her wide-eyed, then made a lunge past her, reaching for the breakers. She shoved his hand away, stepped to block his path. His other hand swung up, caught her above the eye with a blow that sent her into the wall. He bulled past her, but she threw out a hand, ripping at his face, nails catching flesh. A choked roar escaped him, and he slammed his shoulder into her body, pinning her, one hand flailing at her ribs. She tore at him, gripped one ear, her other hand fumbling at her coat, fighting into the pocket amid the thrashing. And then the cold steel was in her grasp, and she pressed it to his abdomen through the cloth, and he hit her again, pain exploding across her side. Her hand clenched and the metal spasmed, spitting. The tiny detonation was muffled by their bodies. Mostly by his body. He jerked as if shocked, but didn't let go. Maria loosened her finger and pulled the trigger again. His body shuddered with a second shot, and he pulled away, looking at her in wonder. A mix of disbelief and surprise. She yanked the gun from her pocket, rested the barrel against his sternum, and fired a third time. Even as he fell, Mario was turning from him to the lieutenant by the monitors. His brow was furrowed in confusion, but his hand was at his hip, pulling his own pistol from its holster. Mario's gun was already drawn. She pointed it at him and fired in one motion, then again and again. The first shot went wide, but the second took him in the shoulder, and the third took a chunk of his face with it. He went down in a twist, sending an arc of bright red blood over the floor and monitor panel. Maria took three quick steps to him and put one more bullet into his back. She scanned the room, pistol ready. Only one person remained, a scientist by the name of Vera. She held her hands up above her head, palms out, and pleaded with her eyes. Maria paused. But everyone here was as good as dead anyway, and she didn't need further complications. She shot her as well. The slide locked open, and Maria dropped the empty gun. Maria turned back to check on the reactor controls. The whole world jumped violently, the floor throwing her across the room. An ear-splitting boom shook her core. She crashed to the floor on her side, several cabinets of the computer coming down around her. This was not right. It was too soon. And she was still alive. She jumped to her feet and rushed to the console. The temperature had stopped rising, and she saw now the pressure gauge was dropping rapidly. Something had ruptured violently. A steam explosion. It would have had to be massive to tear open the reactor containment which meant the fuel rods would be scattered now, too dispersed to chain into a nuclear reaction. 
The radiation counter, however, was maxed out and obviously past its limits. Maria smiled. The graphite moderator was exposed and burning and spewing radioactive particulates into the air. No one here would live beyond the next few days. Even if the Americans escaped, they would never live to deliver Maria's stolen work. This was better than a quick, explosive death. This was the death they deserved. Days of agony as their insides turned to jelly and ran from their bodies. Blistering, skin-flaying burns. Internal swelling and hemorrhaging. Yes. This was justice. Maria crouched down and pried the lieutenant's pistol from his grip. It was heavier than the Walther and held two extra rounds. She would only need the one. There was no reason for her to die the same screaming death as the Americans. She sat down, barely registering the sound of gunfire erupting nearby, maybe on the next floor. It no longer mattered. Perhaps her data would survive for the recovery crews to find. Certainly her radiophage would thrive in the irradiated environment. Others could continue where she left off. She may not have a daughter to continue her line, or loved ones to mourn her passing, but the legacy of her work would alter the nature of humanity and shape the face of the world for centuries. Not many people could say that. It would be selfish to ask for more. She put the gun in her mouth and closed her eyes. Reprise I lay a damp washcloth over my daughter's forehead, hoping to make her last hours more comfortable. I know from experience her fever will not break until she dies. She lies on the bed, shivering under her blanket, face glistening with sweat. Her eyes flutter, but she no longer murmurs words. She doesn't have the energy. Her lips part and twitch as she tries to say something into the darkness. I sit beside her on the bed and take her hand in mine. It clenches feebly. It's okay. Don't try to talk. Mama's here again. Her head lolls to one side. I readjust the washcloth. We exist, together, for a time uncounted. After years, or seconds, or something in between, her hand relaxes and her shivers subside. Her breathing is ragged, but regular, and she sleeps. I watch her for a long moment before I take the cloth from her head and stand up. I will have to go back through the main bedroom to get to our private bathroom, one of only four in the complex, and re-wet the washcloth. Natasha will be there. I consider waiting until she goes to sleep, but that would be something she would do. I am stronger. I take one last look at Alexia, then look away and harden my eyes. When I step from Alexia's bedroom into our room, Natasha is waiting for me. She sits at the tiny folding table we eat our dinners on and looks up at me with baleful eyes. They are crystal blue, a stolen piece of the open sky which I haven't seen in months. Her gold hair spills down her shoulders, beautiful even in disarray. I cannot look at her and not see Alexia. If I'm honest, I still love that about her. She stands up in that manner which I know means this will not be a peaceful night. A resupply flight is arriving tomorrow, she says without preamble. I'm... I'm leaving on it when it returns. 
The announcement hits me like a punch to the gut. I want to double over and retch. Instead, I stand my ground and gaze at her silently. I wasn't expecting this. She can't go. Not so soon. Not when we were making progress. You should come with me. Leave this place in Boris's hands for a season. Or two. No. It's all I can get out at first. All I have breath for. But a growing pressure is building in my gut. Hot and roiling. I can't leave Alexia. They'd stop the project. Alexia is gone. Alexia died months ago. You can't keep doing this. You can't keep killing her over and over again. The pressure condenses into rage, and it starts to boil up my throat. I swallow it down and tighten my hands into fists. Alexia is in the next room, and she's getting better every month. We will kill this cancer, and she will live again. Maria, you have to stop. Her voice breaks, and she's blinking back tears now. I barely recognize what you've become. I barely recognize what I've become. This cycle of birth and death, this constant, unending murder of our child, is destroying you. It is destroying me. I will never stop. Not until our child is returned to us. You can go. I jab a finger toward her, accusing. If that's how weak you are, how little your love means, you can take your bullshit love and leave. I still hurt, and I still care. Natasha's tears well over and I feel a stabbing pain in my chest. It's overcome by a sense of disgust. She doesn't get to trump my emotions with her tears. The fact that she's crying pales in comparison to Alexia's death. Fine, she croaks, wiping at her face. I'm going, but I won't allow you to do this to Alexia anymore. It's monstrous, and I'm taking her. All of her. The genetic samples, the neural scaffolding, all of it. My eyes narrow to slits and I can barely see around the encroaching rage. Like hell you are! Get the fuck out of here and don't ever come back! I mean it! She says, stepping forward, hands clenched to her chest. There's a fire deep in her eyes, shining past the tears. I won't allow you to keep doing this to her! Killing her! She's my daughter! My hand flies out of its own accord, slaps her across the face hard enough her whole body snaps to the left under the blow. I wouldn't have stopped it anyway. It feels right. The sound echoes in the room like a gunshot. I step forward, both arms shaking with what must be rage. I can feel my face twist into a snarl. Fuck you! She's not your daughter! You think because you push her out of your cunt like some talking brood sow that gives you special license over her? I've been her goddamn mother for eight goddamn years. I have just as much claim on her as you. I love her. She is my life. She is my fucking soul. And you will never take her from me. I lean over Natasha, who is still bent to the left with a hand up to her cheek. It flares bright red where I struck her. There is fear in her eyes now, and something inside me hurts to see that from her. From the woman I've loved all my life, but not enough to stem the churning fury that's risen to my chest. I won't let you do this, she forces out in a choked whisper. I'll tell them what you're doing. It's unethical, it's immoral, it's unapproved and unfunded. They will come down on you like a hammer. The washcloth lies forgotten on the floor. My heart thunders in my ears. 
I step forward, and Natasha shrinks from me. I'm not any larger than her, but the storm howling inside drives me on. I continue forward until she's pressed back against the wall, face turned away, quivering and sniveling. I raise my hand and she flinches as I place one finger on her cheek. I trace a line of tears down her face, then cup her chin and lean in. I press my nose into her hair, putting my mouth right by her ear. If you ever say or do anything to endanger Alexia, I will kill you. I don't care where you are or what it takes. I will hunt you down and murder you. They will find your bloody carcass stripped of all its skin and rotting in a dumpster. I take a breath. That may not be enough. She's sobbing quietly now. And then I will start on your family. First your cousin Petrov and his blushing bride. Neither will live to see the end of the year. Then your mother and your father. If they still haven't caught me by then, I will hunt down both your nieces and drown them in a bathtub. I will continue to murder everyone you cared for until the day they finally catch me. And when they march me to the gallows, I will go with a smile on my face, knowing that every last death is on your conscience and not mine. I pause a moment. Is that what you want? She whimpers incoherently, and I hate her for forcing me to become this thing. I clench my hand, digging my fingers into the skin of her jaw. Answer me. I feel her tugging her head and slacken my grip. She shakes her head minutely. Then you will never breathe a word of this to anyone, so long as you live. I let go of her and step back. She slides down to the floor, weeping. I watch her descend, but she never raises her head to look at me, never raises her eyes from the ground. Her hair falls over her face like a veil, hiding her from me. I turn and walk back into Alexia's room. I close the door behind me, softly. I stand there for a long time, breathing, trying to calm myself. As the adrenaline begins to wash out of my system, my body starts to tremble. My hands shake violently, and I cross my arms to steady them. I can feel hot tears welling up, and I squeeze my eyes shut tight. I may vomit. I won't go back into the main room. I'll vomit right here if I have to. Time passes, and I come back to myself. In the other room, I can hear Natasha crying and throwing clothes into a bag. This isn't the first time we've had a shouting fight, and no one even bothers to check on us anymore. Maybe this is for the best. I cross to Alexia's bed and notice she stops shivering. She lies there serenely. I know what this means, but I still reach down to touch her. Her flesh is growing cool, but I force myself to check her pulse regardless. I sit down on the floor, my back to the child's bed, and bend my head over my drawn-up knees. I sit the night by my daughter's body, waiting for her mother to leave. Tomorrow, I will start again. This chapter's original text, production notes, and attribution links 
along with archives and much more, can be found at hpmorpodcast.com. Some sound effects used are courtesy of the Free Sound Project. Today's music was The World Is Not Enough by Garbage. Thank you for listening, and come back in two weeks for the next chapter of Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality. (laughs) ¶¶